You might have uh, played this game when you were a kid, a little puzzle-type thing. Uh, for me, I'm, again, showing my age here, Highlights Magazine. Anybody remember Highlights? Yes, okay, some in the room do, okay. Uh, they would have these things, the, the, the picture puzzles spot the difference. You ever do those where they would have two pictures right next to each other where you had to look at one and then look at the other and then find the differences? And I'll give you a little bit of true confession. I am terrible at them. I mean, like genuinely bad at them. And in fact, actually, I think as a child, I had this little bit of a phobia that they were just in general a giant prank. Spot the 11 differences... And after 10 minutes, I hadn't found one, much less 11. This cruel prank that the makers of the magazine or whatever it was on the internet, wherever you look at them, you know, this cruel prank, this spot the differences, and there aren't actually any. Oh, oh no. It's the challenge, really, of, of developing the eye. In fact, actually, that's why they, they have them for children, is to teach children to begin to think critically and to start paying attention to details and to, to start noticing, well, that's red and that's blue. Those are very different. This finger's straight. That finger's curved. That, those are very different. To, to teach their little minds to pay attention to detail. And that's hard. It's a skill that has to be developed to learn to pay attention to detail. Some of you in your jobs, you work with coworkers that you wish had developed that skill at some point in life. The ability to pay attention to detail. It's the challenge, really, when we come to passages, oftentimes in the Old Testament and oftentimes in the law sections, is to go, okay, what do we do with passages like this? Because one, I am an American and I don't like paying attention to detail. And two, it's really hard for me to think about it. Much less for this passage where 36 through 39, part of why I skipped the middle, is because it's almost identical to the previous section. In fact, actually, in all these places where the ark is described, the table is described, the lampstand is described, it's almost identical to the first time Israel got it. And so we're left with, in essence, a biblical version of, can you spot the difference? Can you spot how different this passage is from the last time we had it 11 chapters prior? You know, (laughs) great, I have a pastor who's already admitted he can't do spot the difference very well, and now we have to go play spot the difference. Only problem is, this is with words, so I'm good to go. The first thing that you would kind of immediately jump out from the page, if you're going to play spot the difference with the two descriptions of building the tabernacle, is how much different Israel's understanding of their God is. You remember, the whole point of Exodus, the Lord takes them out of this Egyptian captivity. He brings them out into the desert through all of these amazing miracles, things that I cannot wait to ask Moses about in heaven. What did it look like when you walked through this sea? Were the walls straight or did they have like waves in the side? Did you have breaking surf over the side? I, I can't wait to ask. When the sea ate them. 
Did it just like come rushing in or were it like, you know, Lord of the Rings where you've got the horses coming through the, the water? What did it look like? I can't wait to ask. But one major kind of thing they've missed along the way is the real essence of who God is. They've seen his power displayed over and over and over again, but they've kind of still dropped the ball. And it's not really until chapter 34 where you get to see the center point of God explaining who he is. In fact, actually, I guess in many ways you could say 34 verse 6 is the summary of the entirety of the scriptures. The Lord passes before Moses and proclaims, this is what God says about himself, to Moses and then vicariously through Moses to all of Israel. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Just a a few chapters prior, they get this new explanation of who God is, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A merciful and gracious God. And they would have known that in some sense, Prior uh, to this along the way, they would have figured that out in some sense. But now, this time, spot the difference. They have a new understanding of how exactly how gracious and merciful God is. Because now they understand in a new way that he's the God who forgives sin. You remember, actually, the last time that these content, this content was given, these directions were given... It was given to Moses while Moses is up on Mount Sinai. And what is Israel doing again down at the bottom of the mountain? They're committing spiritual adultery. They're worshiping not just God of the Bible, but other gods as well. They're worshiping him with golden calf and doing other activities that are not explained but hinted at at being very naughty. You have them, while the directions are being given of who this God is, that he's going to live with them, he's going to dwell in their midst, while those directions are being given, they're all fornicating with foreign gods. And now is really where the rubber's going to hit the road. I mean, Israel, let's be honest, Israel's track record is not good. I mean, they've complained all along the way. They've been cantankerous, they've been unpleasant, they've done other evil things. But this is like the first real test. They have committed adultery. What do we do? I mean, we don't think in these categories today, but virtually every sin that is explained that they did while, you know, worshiping the golden calf, literally all of them were punished by death in ancient Israel. When God says to Moses, look, why don't I just kill all of Israel and start over with you? That is actually like a very viable option because they all deserve to die. What is this God going to do? Is is he going to descend off the mountain and just consume all of Israel? Or maybe just 
and just incinerate them all, just a pile of ash out in the, the sands. No, instead, he explains himself in chapter 34 that he is the God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he is merciful and that he is gracious. And oh my goodness, do they get to see this in a new way. That he's slow to anger. Yeah, I'm I'm going to suggest committing spiritual adultery while God is actively, you know, covenanting with them. That qualifies as a capital offense. That's a big deal. And yet the Lord doesn't incinerate them immediately. He doesn't just zap them into oblivion. He's patient. And even further now, by the time we get to where we are in 36, they've done something different. It's not just that God is angry and just waiting to kill them. Instead, they've done something different. They've worked through and they've arrived at forgiveness. So that by the time you get to chapter 36, we're dealing with a God and his people that have renewed their covenant and real and genuine forgiveness has taken place. Spot the difference. The first one is done with a God who's yet to fully display how forgiving he is. A people who've yet to display how needy they will be for that forgiveness. When we get to 36, 37, 38, and 39, that's no longer the case. They have failed brilliantly. And their need for forgiveness is abundantly clear. I love points like that because that's a thing that transitions perfectly into today, doesn't it? Where we get to understand their story is so much more like our story. To contemplate how God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that's been proven in your life every day of your existence. It's not the only difference though. It's not it's just kind of the starting point as we think big picture about this. But as we actually dive into the text, we have perhaps one of the most shocking giving campaigns in human history concluding at the beginning of chapter 36. Not only is this the God who forgives, but he is doing something spectacular in Israel. He's given them Bezalel and Aholiab. Not only do they have amazingly awesome names, but they also have been given the Spirit of God and been given this unique ability to be craftsmen and teachers of this skill. And Bezalel and Aholiab marshal all of the craftsmen of Israel and anybody that wants to work and they get them all together and they get them organized and they go to start build the tabernacle. And again, building this tabernacle is a big deal. It is a functionally a gold-encrusted tent pretty cool and sounds unbelievably complicated to me. Everything is of the highest quality and the most complicated construction they would have had anywhere in human kind of existence up to this point. And this people, again, their track record has not exactly been stellar. They are a people of complaint. And I'm just going to be honest with you, complainers are not givers. Something churches have proven over and over and over everywhere else throughout the world. Complainers are not givers. It's one of the best ways to determine your budget's going to be in real deep trouble next year. Is you get a church filled with complainers. But the Lord's forgiven them. 
and a new work is happening in their hearts and what happens is they begin to give. And I love how it's explained here in verses 3, 4, and 5. You get the impression that the task is divvied out by Bezalel and Oholiab and the people continue to bring more and more and more tithes and offerings kind of things, uh, more and more offerings to, to Moses. You also seem to get the impression that they go and they start cornering the craftsmen. Hey, what you doing? What you building? It looks like you, you have got a lot of gold. Do you need some more gold? Can I give you some more gold? I'd like to give you some more gold here. I've got some earrings. Would you like some earrings? I've got some bracelets. Would you like some bracelets? Now, that's really exciting the first time you try to do that. But can you imagine the craftsmen where they're like, okay. The first conversation was great. The 18th is not so enjoyable. Just leave your stuff and go, please. And then again, it's not like here where you can, you know, store this. You've got to transport the gold. And finally, you get, again, the way it reads here in verse 5 is it's like the craftsmen start going to Moses in different times. And they're like, seriously, you have to stop them. I have so much gold, I can't even carry it into the shop anymore. When the Lord tells us we've got to move, I'm dreading it. Because what I have to carry is going to weigh a ton. You have to stop them. And you have, again, the most shocking conclusion to any giving campaign ever in the history of the world. Moses gives the command in verse 6 that they have to stop giving. You can't give anymore. Even so, the way the ESV translates beautiful, so the people were restrained from bringing. And I, I, just, I love to think about it. Can you imagine what our session meeting would be like? You know, we're preparing to build a building out there. We're talking about our, our, you know, renegotiating our loan or whatever on Tuesday night at our session meeting. And can you imagine what the conversation we have to have? We're like, no, seriously, guys, we have to tell them to stop giving. We have so much money, we can't find ways to spend it. We can't find ministries to give it to. We have so much, we just, we can't find time to even give it away. Tell them to stop giving for a while so we can organize what we're going to do with the just obscene amount of money that they have already given. And again, you guys have given great. Don't hear that as anything other than you've given great, but you haven't given to that point quite yet. <laughs> but the thing I, I want to, to highlight here is, really, we've seen this. God is, he, he's the one who's shown himself to be the forgiving God. But next, he's actually showing that he's the God who's in charge of building his own house. He's building it by providing with Bezalel and Oholiab the spirit of God and this incredible craftsmanship. He's showing that he's building his own house by providing a giving spirit in a group of people that are the least likely on planet Earth to have it. I mean, again, if you're just reading cover to cover from front to back of the Bible, you got to this point, you would think there is no way this people group is going to give. Yeah, I mean, I hope you don't have to do a giving campaign there because they ain't going to give anything. And here they're giving so much they can't stop. Why? Because God is working in their heart. He's, he's changing their mind. He's changing their attitude. He's changing his people and skipping ahead to 39 where we were and at the end, it's amazing what they get accomplished. I love how 32 captures the overwhelming amount of work that they have to get done. Hooks, frames, bases, pillars, skins, massive list. And they got it all done. They built this place for God. 
Because what it's showing is, is God is actually the one who's building his own house. He's building his own house and he's building it through Bezalel and Aholiab and he's building it through the people and he's building it through the craftsmen. He is building his own house. But again, he's building it through people. And I, I think this is the part that would kind of melt my brain as you think about it of, If you're reading cover to cover again, this Israel is a mess. I mean, they are a hot mess. They are a disaster. They're just a couple of weeks removed from tragic spiritual infidelity. And yet here when God has to build his place to reside with them, this is the group of people he uses. This is, is what he uses. He uses unfaithful people. He uses sinners to establish the place that he is going to dwell. And through him, they do such a good job. Moses, I love how it ends. Moses blesses them. I got nothing else to do. I mean, you guys did such a good job. You did everything exactly the way it's supposed to be done. I'll bless you. We'll move on. It's shocking. Again, that Exodus 34, 6, it says God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And again, we get to see him do it. He's literally putting that into practice by building his house through the least expected way ever. By having his people do it. It's intriguing how that is a concept that is kind of continuous throughout the scriptures from this point to, you know, all the way to the end. But it changes what's being built. Here you have this record of them building a gold-encrusted tent by God's people working and showcasing his power. Now we are building his new building. And thankfully it is not a drywall-encrusted building over there. I mean, that's going to be a helpful tool. But we're building his church. That's what Peter was doing there in chapter 2. That's why Robert put it in the order of worship for us. Is that the Lord is building for himself still a spiritual house where he will dwell with his people. Now it's not a golden crusted tent. It's us. With Christ being the cornerstone, building for himself this holy place, this holy temple, this holy residence, specifically his church. And how gracious is he And how powerful is he that he can do that through us? Again, how's your track record? Any better in Israel's? Well, hopefully this week it is, but to show how how gracious and kind this miraculous God is. And then again, to see the very thing that they're building. That this is the people group. This Israel is the first group of people since the fall to have God live in their midst. And that's really a marvelous thing. It's not Noah. It's not Enoch. It's not Abraham. It's this group of Israel that builds the house where God will reside in their midst. 
And if you, again, if you're reading from cover to cover and not you know, take all of your New Testament knowledge away, you would think that would never happen again. It happened in the garden. And Adam and Eve resided with God, interacted with a God who resided in their midst. But after the fall, they, they blew it. There's no second chance. There's no forgiveness. There's no redemption. There's no hope in the future. And yet here, you have this Israel, this Israel actually finishing it, the place where he's going to live. And to marvel, to marvel at how gracious this God is, that he would live in his people's presence at all. They don't deserve that. And to marvel at how he uses the saints to accomplish the task. When we talk about it in the ministry of the church here, we, we talk often about how you're gathering, perfecting the saints, that's our task, but word, sacrament, prayer, fellowship. It is genuinely amazing how much of those are corporate activities that is designed to be done as the body of Christ together. Why? Because God uses his people to do it. He uses us to together figure out how to read his Bible better so that we can understand it, so that it's taught, so that it's preached, so that it's thought about. Even your prayers. You realize how much better corporate prayer is than individual prayer? Because when you pray corporately, you minister to me and your brothers and sisters around you. I mean, seriously, go teach Sunday school. Listen to the little children pray. No matter how hard your heart is, that will melt it. And if it doesn't, you got issues. That's where you need to really do some spiritual work in there. To think again, that fourth one, just fellowship, how much God uses his church to build each other up, to accomplish his task. It's put the same way in the New Testament, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How, how is it that his kingdom comes? Weirdly enough, again, it's, it's not this direct, unmediated, it happens, there's the kingdom. Jesus comes, he initiates the kingdom, he ministers, he dies, he resurrected, he ascends into glory. And then he says, it's better that I'm gone so that you have my spirit. And what's interestingly the spirit's key aspect of his ministry? His ministry is always a mediated ministry. He uses other person's words. He uses other person's prayers. He uses even other person's bodies. He works through us. Using God's saints to build up his body. How gracious is our God. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that he would even dwell with his people at all. I like, too, is if you think about the, the kind of the differences, that's the way we've been looking at the passage. But the other thing I think that's so intriguing is if you actually pause for a minute and, and pay attention to the similarities. This is an aspect of the language work and this study most of you haven't done. That's fine. You're not supposed to. That's okay. If you want to, I'm happy. I'll help you with it. 36 through 39, aside from the new parts that are interjected, most of which we've already talked about, the only major changes through the rest of it is literally they change the person who did it and when it was done. It's a verb change. 
That's why I kept reading into the part that you all stopped listening in verse 36, verses 10 through 14 and such. That's where you stopped listening. There's actually a point to that. Verse 8, all the craftsmen start working. Verse 10, he coupled five curtains to one another and the other five. He coupled, uh, verse 11, he made, Bezalel does it and it's actually accomplished. It's intriguing to me that really the only major change of any sort for most of this is one minor grammatical change from you shall do this to he did do this. From a, you know, kind of you Corporate imperative to a he, it actually was accomplished. And I love to just contemplate to think about how marvelous is our God's plan that he can deliver his plan in such a way that even while his people are committing spiritual adultery, as he's giving it, there's literally nothing that has to change because he's planned for that all along. It's not like, oh no, wow, whew, mm. Golly gee, if Israel hadn't done that, my plan would have been perfect then. I love how you can look at the way he wants his dwelling place made and nothing changes. It's not like it's a surprise to him that the golden calf happens. It's not like it catches him flat-footed, catches him off guard. He doesn't know what to do. Oh no. Prior to the golden calf, after the golden calf, his plan is what his plan is. He's prepared. He's equipped. His plan is established. And it does beg the question of, okay, if this is the case for Exodus 36 through 39, what on, what on earth am I supposed to do with this? I mean, how, how am I supposed to kind of walk away and take this away and think through it and ponder it and all that stuff? And I would say, first and foremost, one of the great kind of spiritual disciplines and something that we all need to be doing at least somewhat regularly is to go back and take our past and look at it through the lens of Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Because you realize chapters 36 through 39 is simply an explanation of how God is that. Does God forgive sins? Yes, he forgave the golden calf and he forgave it so well that he was then able to establish his dwelling place among Israel. Was he slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Yes, absolutely. He was able to bless them through Bezalel and Oholiab, bless them through their giving, bless them in such a way they were able to actually build this thing. He built for himself a house. Is he the God that's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, slow, gracious and merciful? Yes, he, he did such a good job. His plan wasn't even altered. It wasn't upset. It wasn't frustrated by their sin because he's so gracious. But then for you to do that with your own life, to sit back and to look at all of the various days and ways that you have lived and to consider your life in light of God's mercy. Like example, I use myself as an example. How do I know that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Simple answer. My adolescence. My entire adolescence is proof that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's very easy. Pretty much any week from my adolescence I can pause and contemplate. And it's proof that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The capital crimes I have committed 
You remember, I mean, you were killed, you were executed for being willfully defiant and disobedient to your parents. Again, how much of my adolescence was marked with that? To pause and to reflect on our life and to think of all of the various things that we live through in light of that. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, part of it is it's a bit of a corrective for the kind of postmodern narcissistic nihilism that exists today. Where we've been told all along that I'm the center of the world, but I have no meaning at the exact same time, and it confuses everybody. (laughs) I'm the center of the world. I have no meaning. I don't know which one I should listen to. Because Exodus 34, verse 6, is the solution to that. I'm not the center of the world. God is. But I have meaning because he's using me to build his body. And guess what? That's your story. If you're in Christ now, you're not the center of the world. I I hate to break that to you. It might hurt your little feelings. I'm so sorry. If I've offended you, come talk to me on Tuesday. We'll talk about it. You're not the center of the world, but guess what? You're important. Because you are the mechanism he has chosen to build his body. You are the mechanism that he has chosen to build his church. You are the mechanism that he has chosen to establish his kingdom in this place. The spirit of God working in you from young to old and everything in between. And to consider that he is the gracious God. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. And then lastly, I would say one more. I'm sure there was a great temptation for them to accomplish this amazing building project. And this is a spectacular thing. I mean, realistically, one of the most spectacular things any of them would have ever seen. I mean, a solid gold tent, gold encrusted tent. I mean, that's pretty phenomenal. The place where God lives. Next week, it's going to become even more spectacular as what happens once they kind of establish it. But there would be this kind of great temptation to be like, whew, we made it. I can catch my breath. And I'll be honest, that is probably my single greatest concern about that big pile of dirt out there. Is that this precious, holy, sweet, kind, affectionate church goes, we made it. Those words scare me more than any other words from this church. We made it. They scare me for a number of reasons. One is because it has absolutely no divine reference in it at all. It's not he did it. It's not it's finished. We made it. No, we didn't. And secondly, it it gives the idea of completion. Like our work is done. Well, no, that work is done. Praise God. We have a building where all of the family of God can sit together. Yay. 
I mean, I, I like preaching twice on Sunday morning. Twice it gives me a chance to do a bad sermon over again. Um, <laughs> unless it's really bad and then I have to live through it twice. Um, you have to live through it once. I have to live through it twice. There's very, very little less enjoyable than that. But the great danger that we would think we finally arrived and to just rest in our laurels. And to forget that, no, that building is just a tool for cultivating a closeness to God. Cultivating a love for Christ. Cultivating a location where people can hear their sins can be forgiven. And I'll tell you right now that if we ever get to that, we made it perspective. Those that are particularly weak in our midst that struggle with discouragement and sadness and sorrow... Their sorrows will eat them alive because we'll lose that good news hope that we have. To stop talking about that God is at work, that God is the one who is building his house, that God is establishing this because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that will never be finished. That message never ends because God never ends. And I hope that we continue to say that over and over and over again until we die. And we go to glory and we get to say it without sin. And say it better there. God, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. May that be our song today and into the future. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it challenges us where we are weak, you are strong. May you place in our mouths your praise always. Forgive us. Oh God, forgive us. (laughs) We can't even name all the sins. There are so many. We do pray that you would make us like Christ for your name's sake. Amen.